Hello, and welcome to another edition of Sounds Japanese Canadian to me, with me, Alexis Jensen. And me, Raymond Nakamura. And what are we talking about today? POW camps, which stands for Prisoner of War, as opposed to Psychology of Winning, which is a book I read once before. Called POW? Yeah. Or um, Power of Women, I think that's another one. POW? Yeah. <laughs> or just POW. Yeah. But and then uh, we're talking about this serious subject of prisoners of war camps. Yes. So what were they? Oh, I explained that that's what the title is, but uh, this is referring to the places in other parts of Canada, primarily in Ontario, where people, all of the men, were shipped. So these were Japanese Canadians who were declared a national threat, and so they were put in these POW camps. And so, in total, 800 Japanese and Japanese-Canadian men were imprisoned, and 500 of which of them were Nisei. I think this is particularly interesting because it reflects how the Canadian government was dealing with the Japanese-Canadian population as a whole, by having both Issei and Nisei with very different agendas being lumped together as prisoners of war. Yeah. And so they, in that sense, were worse, more in turn, to use that term, whereas the other people weren't even charged with anything and they were all relocated to these other camps. When you say that, you're talking about the internment people, like who were put in well, the I mean, Slocan Valley? Or yeah, talking? yeah, the Slocan. It's often called as, as interned, but they didn't actually have a particular charge put against them, whereas these guys were charged in some cases, or at least they were being treated specifically as criminals. Yes, they were. But I actually talked to someone, and don't quote me on this, but uh, there's we're no... We're recording kind of... it, so we are quoting Oh, it. no, it was... <laughs> <laughs> no, it was under redress. Remember how people wanted to be exonerated? Oh, um, you're right. For their criminal records? And yeah. then they discovered that there was no criminal record. There was no actual, yeah. Yeah, they so were... They had no case against Yeah. So the day after Pearl Harbor, 38 Japanese nationals were rounded up and sent to a prisoner of war camp in Kananaskis, Alberta. And who these 38 men were were principals of Japanese language schools and men who had served in the Japanese Imperial Army before coming to Canada. And then the rest seemed to be like random choices. And there were rumors that some of the men that were rounded up were enemies of Itsuji Mori who passed their names on to the RCMP. But that is speculation. And he was kind of He's a character on his own. We could probably do a podcast on him. He's um, kind of a gangster, I guess. Is right, way. and we're often slurring his name. But in yeah. any case, I think that's relevant in this case because he was the primary contact for the RCMP as they were deciding on what was going to happen to Japanese Canadians. And there was opposition among some people within the Japanese Canadian community against his leadership in, in that position. So there was that suggestion that he might have been using his political clout in that way. To pull them away. So the second wave of men who arrived a few months later in the prisoner of war camp of Kananaskis. I don't know if they went to Kananaskis, but they were the second wave and they are called the Gambariya. And the term comes from the Japanese meaning to hold out or stand firm. And they can loosely be categorized as the diehard Japanese nationalists who were rooting for the Japanese to win the war. So this term Gambaru is often used by Japanese people that to, to be hang tough or do your best and so they say, Gambate! <laughs> so it usually has a positive association. But in I this think, case, I think, I probably did. Well, I, I think that nowadays this group is not often mentioned because 
there's a tendency. Well, the main emphasis is on the innocence of the Japanese Canadians in, in all of this. Whereas these particular guys were rooting for Japan to win. So it's kind of embarrassing to, <laughs> to recognize that they did exist. There weren't a whole bunch of them and they weren't, um, the, the main thrust of it, but they, no. they were present. Well, ba- you could, you could ascertain from the 800 and 500 were Nisei, which weren't part of them, that about 300 men were. Yeah. Gone by, yeah. Your math is paying off. I yeah. know. <laughs> so the second group was mainly Nisei, who I just mentioned of, and and they were broken up into two camps themselves, and by camps I should say two groups, and they were the Nisei who refused to show up for their road camp duties, and this was a protest against the government for not recognizing them as Canadian. And the second group was called the Nisei Mass Evacuation Group. And these were men who were protesting against the separation of Jap- of their families. Would you agree with that, breaking those two up? Right, yeah. So there was that kind of protest. And, and then later they evolved uh, into other um, forms, I guess, subgroups, depending on their attitude of how things were going, because it, it did last a long time. So it's interesting how uh, I think some people call them the Nisei Mass Evacuation Group. And then in one of the books I was reading, the, the Wild Daisies book, you referred to it as the Mass Evacuation Movement Group. I think okay. it was referring to the same thing. Uh, there was another sub-faction that evolved later on, a smaller group, who wanted to renounce their Canadian citizenship. Yeah, but that was in protest? Yeah, that was later, yeah. And so there had been this big kerfuffle where they had been imprisoned in the Vancouver Immigration Building related to this and then they got shipped off those were is that does that fall under the mass evacuation some of those people people yeah who were because well i just think it's interesting that well as you were saying you have these the gambaria who are fierce japanese nationalists and then you have the other side of the coin of these people who are like i'm canadian right yes yes so they're weird yeah that's right and they're being lumped together they're both yeah um being treated the same way. And in a sense, the, the Gambaria almost saw this as their duty. They were, they were treating it as their duty. And mm-hmm. so they were almost pleased to be thinking that they could be doing something for Japan over there. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas the others obviously were upset by being mistreated by the government. Yeah. So do you want to talk about Camp Kananaski? Okay. So one of the, the first places where they went, uh, some of them were put in Kananaskis, which is not far from Banff. And it's now a, an environmental center for the center for the University of Calgary and the site of the G8 meeting in 2002. I don't know if they talked about these kinds of injustices back then, <laughs> but uh, it was sort of a, an in-between um, station and apparently it wasn't such a great place anyway. There were small, poorly insulated huts and, and the washrooms were outside, which was in December and in a cold place. So that would have been extra Awful. torture. You know? Yeah. So, and then the second camp that they were shipped to was Camp Petawawa. Shortly after, it was the second camp to be set up in Canada, prisoner of war camps. When we say camps, that's what it's, I'm talking about prisoner of war camps the whole time. So shortly after, 24 more camps were set up in Canada, and the majority wasn't in Ontario, because Ontario is an inhospitable place, if you ask me. (laughs) So you're you're saying being in Ontario is part of the punishment. (laughs) Yeah, I do. I think that. I'm really sorry for those people who live on Ontario. Hmm. 
And I just wanted to talk about why all these prisoner of war camps were being set up in Canada, because it seems strange since the war was being fought in Europe, how come we're setting up all these ca- these camps? And the reason why is because the Canadian government struck a deal with the British government, because the British government was fearing that there would be a German invasion at any moment, and they wanted to keep their prisoners from being rescued. So what the British did is they offered to pay Canadians for the transportation across the Atlantic and the upkeep of these prisoners. And over the course of the war, over 40,000 prisoners were shipped to Canada, which is pretty crazy. The Japanese and Japanese Canadians stayed at Petawawa for only a couple of months, I think maybe while they were getting their final camp ready. And so there was largely, uh, it was largely a German prison. And so when the men arrived, the Germans were greeted them with cries of, Japan bonsai, like they were comrades at war. <laughs> well, and they were, since Ger- Germany and Japan were on the same side, so they they saw them as being um, yeah connected in that way. And but those ones were valid POWs. Yeah, they, they were actually soldiers, so you, yeah. yeah, that's where they belong. And then these other guys were fishermen or whatever, and they got rounded up because of their nationalities. Yeah, and they must have seen days. There was actually a man who came in here. When I first started working and he told me about that and he was one of, he was a young man who had been rounded up as a prisoner of war and he was shipped off to, I'm not sure which camp he was referring to, but how he said it was so weird because the German prisoners who were there were quite happy to be in the prisoner of war camps because it means they weren't going to die in battle. Right. So their, their whole attitude was jovial and happy and playing and stuff. It's like club med. Yeah. Like military totally. club med. And yeah. then for him, it was like his life had been taken away from yeah, him and, right. he, and his freedom. And so he was really upset by mm. how he had to be there and just the two contrasting sides. Right. But these two groups did get along and they did, um, do daily activities to keep morale up, and these things included gymnastics, orchestra practice, and amateur theatricals. And they were also allowed to do daily jobs around the camp to keep keep it from not being so rough, I guess, every day. Do you want me to go into Angler? Yeah. So there's Angler, which is uh, in between Schreiber and Marathon, to uh, mega cities. <laughs> well, <laughs> well, it's sort of near Thunder Bay, I guess. So ang- an Angler... I don't know if it has anything to do with fishing, but it was near Lake Superior there. So, In any case, uh, that had already been set up previously, and apparently some German soldiers had managed to escape from there. And some of them got shot, and they were buried outside of it. So partly because of that, they were extra strict on these new ones who came in, the, the Japanese Canadian ones. Mm-hmm. So uh, they were sent there, and partly they were moved from Petawawa because they were getting more and more of these people who were protesting against what was happening. And they were given a number. There's a listing. And there's a book, uh, POW 101 by uh, Robert Okazaki. And he has a listing of all the people who are in there. So number one was Akira Abe. And number 766 was Ichijiro Tsuji. So as it turns out, Ichijiro would... Ichijiro, now that I think about it, it means like one, two. I don't know why his <laughs> name is like that. That's kind of funny. Maybe I, I don't know what I'm talking about. But uh, the... Uh, the funny thing I realized about Mr. Okazaki is that I knew him when I was playing hockey. His son was on this Sunset hockey team that I was on. So he went on this trip to Japan. This was back in the 80s, so before he wrote this book. So I didn't interview him about this because I didn't even <laughs> know he was in a POW camp. Anyway, so Angler was on a railway stop, and uh, it was located on a large military base in the bush. It was on a hill and enclosed by two fences 
they were about 10 feet apart and topped with barbed wire. So th these are more hardcore than the uh, relocation camps, the internment camps we oh, talk yeah. about in BC. They had that and they also had guard towers. So the guard towers had bright lights and they were placed at regular intervals and the guards, um, they had the barracks that were close to the camp. It was cold in the winter and mosquito infested in the summer. So not a sort of place. Well, I guess some people do go there for their holidays, but not, <laughs> I don't not, know not why. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so there were about 800 prisoners who were housed in these H-shaped huts. Uh, I don't think the H stood for hut, but it just happened <laughs> that that was the configuration. And there were about 80 of them in each of these configurations. One leg of the, of the H, there were about 40 beds. And the washing facilities were in the center bar, if you imagine that. And then on arrival to Anglia, they were issued uh, two pairs of pajamas and two sets of blue denim clothing with a large red circle on the back. I've seen black and white pictures of this, and, and you can see how big the, the circle yeah, it's, is. Yeah, it's the whole but bag. You can't really, you don't really get a sense of it. But in the Wild Daisies book by um, Tom Sando, he has some sketches, and you can see the the blue on the red, mm -hmm. the, the the look of it. So the interesting thing about that is you might think of the the Japanese flag, and so some of them thought that they had these custom made clothes uh, <laughs> representing the rising sun, and so probably those gumbadi I thought this was great, but. Uh, <laughs> It was more sobering to realize it made them an easy target um, in case they were trying to escape. And this was also more top of mind, given that at Petawawa, there had been that um, disagreement that took place. And there was shot. There were shots fired through the, the camps when there was uh, an argument taking place and the guards had opened fire on them. Nobody was killed, as far as I know, but it made them realize that there was live ammunition. So the daily life of in Angler was very militaristic because they're in the middle of a military base. Uh, the... Also, some of the the ones who are Gambaria saw this as a military thing, and and so apparently they were encouraging them all to shave their heads like soldiers. Really? There, yeah. In the in in one of those books, the, the Nisei guy was uh, talking about how these these guys were saying, "Well, we're." doing this for Japan, oh, you should shake God. your head. So, so that, that sort of adds to this sort of different uh, viewpoint they had on things. And they were woken up every morning by bugle call at 6 a.m. and confined to their huts after 7 p.m. That was their daily oh, that 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 life. That's all in your daily life. Okay. So some of those books go into more detail, um, the, the, uh, the Prisoner of War 101, but we won't, we won't go into all of that right now. Uh, the food, it seems there are different accounts, and often the complaint had to do with whether they were getting rice or not. And later on, there were um, some shipments of things that were coming from some of the internment camps in B.C., where people had collected their materials and they sent them to the POW camps. And there were also negotiations with the uh, Japanese Red Cross, I think, for them getting supplies. Mm -hmm. and, and this became a kind of a complicated thing about who was... Uh, allowed to be helped by the Japanese government and affiliated things and who were not, or outside organizations, which I guess you'll talk about later. But the fact that there were Japanese nationals in there, but then also Japanese Canadians in here, they, they were treated differently and, and the circumstances uh, came to light in, in various situations. They also, they had, did have a canteen, which is like a store set up. They were given money by way of the custodian who had liquefied all their possessions. And the canteen, so it was their own money that they, their were, own they money were allowed that they were to spend to, to keep themselves alive. Yeah, and they were there was things like tobacco there, but there was not liquor. 
Sometimes I think that there were protests when they were not going to show up for roll call or something, and then they were going to cut back the rights to having access to the canteen. As a, that would make sense. That would be one I of mean, their, you would try and yeah. punish people, right? So this was another point of protest. There were things like they had to work in the kitchens and in the canteen, but also uh, chopping wood and things like that. So some of them, the Gambaria, for example, were intentionally not doing the jobs because they were, they were saying, well, they're prisoners. They're not supposed to be doing that. And then, so, but some of the younger ones wanted something to do. So I guess they were doing that. And then others were caught in between as to whether they were going to do it as protests or something to do or. Uh, it was kind of a weird situation, it seems. I would want to do the jobs, wouldn't you? Because you had nothing else to do? Go out and get stung by mosquitoes and things like that? Well, well some of them get were, stung by mosquitoes. Well, they were anyway. writing haiku or they were practicing kendo that's or true. something. I don't know. Right, so that's what the next thing. Activities that they did outside of jobs were judo, kendo, history, literature, and calligraphy. This was done within the prison itself. So prisoners of war would be the the teachers doing this. And some of the Issei gave Japanese language classes to the Nisei. And this is especially significant, or at least interesting, given because they had rounded up many of the leaders of the Japanese schools at the beginning. And so they were in here, people who are heads of the Japanese schools before. And ironically, they weren't allowed to have Japanese school in all the other places. Uh, but here they were allowed to basically do whatever japanese <laughs> things they wanted to. Yeah. Because <laughs> they were supposed to be Japanese, not Canadian. Right. I guess that's yeah. why they were rounded up. Yeah. So, and another class that they had was a haiku tanka class. And one of the prisoners, Takeo Nakano, continued to do it afterwards. And 20 years later, he won the Imperial Poetry Contest. And it's a contest that's held in Japan where 47,000 people apply and only 12 are chosen. So... And he wrote the redress. Did he write that? Well, one? there's a famous one, yeah, that he wrote, written after the redress. I think we mentioned when we did that podcast. Mm -hmm. And his book, uh, Behind Barbed Wire, has uh, Tonka throughout it. And that was one of the books that we looked at for mm -hmm. researching this. There was also music lessons and uh, a piano and band who played Japanese instruments like the shakuhachi. And the equipment that was provide the equipment like the musical instruments was provided by the Red Cross and the Salvation Army. And later on there was also three hundred books that arrived from a Japanese library in Vancouver which had closed. And Reverend Shimitsu had been authorized to go through the books and choose three hundred to send. So those were their activities. The Kendo was a big thing. I, I was recently looking into Kendo history and, and a number of them had written memoirs about being in the camp and then doing this Kendo. They're very philosophical. I mean, it, it sort of emphasizes samurai values. So this idea of focus and, and uh, perseverance and so on. It was interesting how they were able to get the equipment uh, there in order to practice. How did they get it there? Well, in some cases they were fabricating things, but some of them had had it and some later some of them got sent or they'd have to take turns using the equipment okay i guess you could use a like just a stick a branch for a shania right well it kind of hurts the thing is that that, that oh, the shania has hit. separate yeah. bamboo slats yeah although I but remember, if you're just practicing by yourself well, one of them was saying that they were using instead of bamboo a different kind of wood i forget which but it was heavier than a regular one so it hurt more yeah i guess i when i did it i never <laughs> got to the combat stage where I was hitting people. <laughs> I was just over off in the corner by myself. <laughs> oh, you had to work on your footwork? Yes. Oh, I see. Yeah. I, I didn't know you had done that. Yeah. 
So correspondence. Now, according to the Geneva Convention, prisoners were allowed to exchange a letter a month and a postcard a week, and they were all subject to the censor. So that meant that any information about their conditions or where they were and stuff like that was were cut out. So the prisoners were given paper with, and on the paper there were squares that indicated how many letters or characters they were allowed to be written. That might be the same kind of paper they use normally anyway for writing Japanese when you do a, a、um, composition in Japanese school or something, so that you keep the letters separate and it's easier to read. But in this case, it had that additional function of limiting or making it easier to see how much you had written. So the censors would go through. Obviously, they had Japanese、uh, people who could read Japanese who were being censors as well. So sometimes the letters would come into the man, and they were so cut up that they could hardly make any sense of them. But they were at least, I guess, getting some information—the fact that they were still alive, since they had very other little, yeah, I guess little、so. other contact from、um, their families. Then,、uh, speaking of correspondence in the Geneva Convention. Um, I find that this is my favorite part, actually, about the prisoner of war. Just thinking about it, how the Japanese nationals were protected under its laws, and for some reason, their protector in this case was the Spanish consulate was assigned to protecting them. And the reason why they had, why they were protected, is because the nationals were legitimately prisoner of war under the Geneva Convention, but the Japanese Canadians. Were Canadians and didn't fall under this rule, so they had no protect, protection by anyone. So it's this strange thing where the Japanese nationals actually had more rights than the Japanese Canadians in this instance. And so that's what Raymond was、uh, mentioning before: is some of the Japanese Canadians tried to revoke their citizenship as a protest to try and get more rights. It's not that they didn't want to be Canadian anymore; it's just they wanted a voice. And the only way to get a voice was to become a Japanese national. Well, I think they were kind of fed up with Canadians as well, but well, it might be. But I think it was more if that if they were going to go to that, yeah, like they were. Yeah, just, there was a pragmatic reason. Yeah, and so they actually had like little pieces of paper where you could just like someone had made a template where you could just fill out the thing to hand it in to try and revoke your citizenship, and it went to the National Defense Department, and it was obviously rejected. They remained Canadian. No, doing that, yeah. yeah. But the Japanese nationals did bring a list to the Spanish consulate, and the main points that they、uh, wanted to be addressed were improvements to the hospital. There was a hospital at Angler because they felt that the doctor was underqualified and the supplies were lacking. The second thing was food. They wanted the same rations as men in the army had, and they wanted less eggs and more meat. Another point was they wanted another stove in the huts to keep them warmer. And they wanted the roof of the huts repaired. And then、uh, another thing is they wanted their families to stop paying postage for letters that were sent to them because, under the Geneva Act, people were allowed to send mail for free. So even though the prisoners of war didn't have to pay for postage when they received the letters from their family, they could see that there was stamps on them, and they didn't think this was fair that their family had to pay for something when there was so little money to begin with. And then another thing they wanted was a radio hut in, or sorry, a radio in each hut, and this was because they knew that each prisoner, the prisoners in Japan, like the Canadian prisoners or just the Allies in general, had、um, radios in their huts, their equivalent of the huts, whatever they had, and so they wanted the same thing, and they also wanted beer, <laughs> which is liquor. Uh, that's the same thing that you mentioned about the treatment of Canadians in Japanese 
POW camps, because that's a notorious thing of, of Japan mistreating the people that they were in control of. And so it seems like there was some of this political awareness of both the, the, the international situation going on. And I think that, that the fact that they had these Japanese nationals in this camp colored the perception of some people about all Japanese Canadians being treated in a similar way. I've, I've met people who make the argument that everybody had to be put away and they were at least treated better than the, the Canadian soldiers um, held by the Japanese. And kind of weird comparison comes out, I think, in, in this situation as well. Well, I think, yeah, I think that the government was really aware of that. And there's actually an example with Shoyu. There was only, after the internment and everybody was rounded up and taken to Slokan and other places, there was only one person who produced shoyu, and that was a man called Mr. Omano. At the beginning, the he all of the shoyu was going to uh, people in the internment camps, and the prisoner of war people were asking, can we please get shoyu, can we get rice and fish instead of bread and meat for their daily food? And there's all these, I can't remember who the government letters were, but there's all these letters from, like, the National Defense, like, high up people discussing Shoyu. And they, the argument was that it was better to provide the prisoners with Shoyu than the internees because there's no benefit in providing the internees with Shoyu, but there is with giving it to the prisoners because then the prisoners could then write to their their friends in Japan or whoever else saying that they are giving, they're being given their traditional food, which includes shoyu and meaning soy sauce in case. Yeah. Soy, yeah. soy sauce. And with the hopes of that, then maybe the Canadians who are prisoners in Japan will be given traditional things like, I don't know, ketchup. Well, maybe they could swap. <laughs> they could, they could send the, the potatoes from the, from the one <laughs> camp in Canada to Japan and vice versa. They get the rice. Yeah, so it was this thing where they wanted to give the Japanese nationals as much as they could in the hopes that they would pass the word on of their fair treatment to Japan and that would be reciprocated to the Canadian prisoners. Hmm. Now, uh, surrounding this, we mentioned earlier there were guards and, and a little bit more detail on that is, is that they were part of the veterans guards. So they were veterans from World War One who were over 45 and a lot of them had hoped to serve overseas, but instead they were given this less glamorous job as prison guards. You know, I just heard on the news a similar thing happening, that they're going to change that rule about veterans having first dibs on, on security positions. Like, oh. right now, I just saw yesterday. But anyway, uh, so they were shipped up to northern Ontario, these guards, and they kind of felt like prisoners themselves, I suppose. One of them in particular, his name, he was Anisei Roy Matsui, and he had been in the army and then posed it to Angler, which made him feel extra awkward, uh, given that one of them was a Japanese teacher who he had known. And so he was supposed to be guarding these people that he, he knew. That, that made it extra difficult. <laughs> yeah. Um, the other guards, at the beginning, they were hard and unsympathetic, assuming that they were, in fact, dealing with Japanese prisoners of war. But then as they realized that at least the Nisei were just Canadians and they, and they shared a lot of values and customs so that their attitudes mellowed and it seems that there's that ongoing relationship that gets modified bit a bit of beer and cigarettes that can smooth over disagreements <laughs> did you ever watch hogan's heroes that's that was the no. comedy set in the world war ii that, that that's the german ones but I, I think maybe they should have a 
a Japanese Canadian version. Of <laughs> what would it be called? Uh, I don't know who were the heroes <laughs> in that case, but we, we'll have to work on that. <laughs> So, in 1942, there was a prisoner exchange between Japan and allies, and what that meant was they would exchange prisoners of war for their, so Canadians for Japanese, essentially, and... Rice for potatoes. Yeah, right. so they, awful, they, they, reducing people to food. No, they'd have to carry them on their backs, and it was, maybe it was sewn into their clothing. Yeah. So they, the Canadians offered the Japanese nationals who were there the opportunity to, to return to Japan if they wished. And of, I'm assuming, the 300 who were nationals, only 22 accepted and left to Japan. I guess a lot of them, their families were still in Canada. Yeah, I'm sure that's why. The, and that was one of the reasons is they were unsure if their families would go back as well. Yeah. They weren't too super clear on that. I don't think if someone didn't give me a decisive answer about that, I think I'd probably just keep staying put too. Yeah. <laughs> So then eventually there was the opportunity for a release, but after about a year of starting this up, the government realized that the POWs were not really a, a national threat. And the cost of keeping them and, and keeping the camp going was sort of counterproductive since they needed men to be helping with the war effort. So the POWs were given a choice to stay or be released. And so 300 of them ended up leaving by the end of the first year. But there was this ongoing tension because some of them were either Gambaria who were there promoting Japan and, and its needs, or they were Nisei who were protesting the government's treatment of their families overall so that they were staying there in protest uh, rather than accepting jobs in other places or, or leaving. But some of them were kind of, especially the Gambaria, were, were guilting or, or in, uh, bullying others into not leaving. And in the uh, Behind the Barbed Wire Fence uh, book there, he, he, Nakano ends up leaving to join his family, in, in, on, and he kind of did it secretly so that, that it, they, he wouldn't get harassed for doing this. So this was an ongoing situation, but it was complicated. And, and Tom Sando wrote this way, that he felt betrayed by my motherland Canada, he was an Issei, and abandoned by fatherland Japan, I felt at a loss that I had nowhere to turn. Hmm. So at the end of the war, of the 800 who were originally incarcerated, 485 men remained. Of them, 61 repatriated to Japan, and then 128 of them refused to go east of the Rockies or back to Japan, which was the conditions laid upon all Japanese and Japanese-Canadians, regardless of if they're interned or prisoner of wars. And these 128 who refused, they were finally shipped to Saskatchewan, which was the only province that would take them. So that's all I got for Prisoner of War again. That's all. Thanks again.